This episode of The Explainer is sponsored by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Daft Advantage Ads will maximise your chances. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what is happening in world banking right now? You'll have heard about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in the US and how that has set off a chain of market jitters. Another US bank, Signature, was next to go and over the weekend, the Swiss government put pressure on UBS to agree to a rescue package for its rival Credit Suisse, whose troubles were compounded by the external atmosphere created by those US bank closures. Understandably then, there are, is this 2008 all over again, questions floating around. In our own newsroom here at The Journal, we've been sharing stories with those young journalists who don't remember the great collapses and subsequent bailouts of the last recession. One editor recalled serving workers from Lehman Brothers in New York on the day they went bust. Others relive days following Brian Cowan around with a microphone as he promised everything would be okay. Today, investors and markets being on edge doesn't necessarily mean the whole system will go kaput again. But we do need to get some sense and knowledge into this conversation, so I'm delighted our guests found some time in what must be an extremely hectic schedule. Brooke Masters is the Financial Times US Financial Editor and an Associate Editor there. Firstly, Brooke, can we go back to basics for those who only heard about Silicon Valley Bank recently? What type of lender was it? Can you give us some details about their background and what type of customers it has? So basically, Silicon Valley Bank is an unusual bank in America. It's what's known as a regional bank. So it's not one of the giant ones that you hear of all the time, like J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. It's kind of the next group down. And it's specialized in working with the technology community in California, particularly venture capitalists who invest in technology and the technology companies that they put their money into. So, you know, the future Googles of the world, not Google itself, but something that is, you know, five people and a dog who are trying to reinvent the world. And and the main thing they did is like, if you were a small technology company and you got a bunch of money from a venture capitalist, you put that money in Silicon Valley Bank and then ran your life out of it. And so who would be most exposed to its collapse? Is it the future Googles of the world? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it it tends to be, I mean, it's companies like Roku, which is a big streaming company, admitted that it had a lot of money in Silicon Valley. Lots of venture capitalists and lots of venture capitalist-backed companies had their money there. Often their employees or their um, executives would have accounts there as well. It's unusual in that in the U.S., as in most countries, there there's insured deposits. So normal people who have accounts up to $250,000 are insured. And so that you imagine that's every ordinary people, you, me, you know, somebody who has needs a car loan, those kinds of people. Silicon Valley Bank had more than 90% of its deposits were not insured, which meant they were giant, big accounts. So they had a small number of a few corporate accounts and rich people accounts and not very many normal people. So if people are then thinking about who is impacted, they can think, oh, normal people aren't impacted. But would this collapse have wiped out those bigger people, those bigger accounts? They were concerned it would. When it, when it was taken over by the FDIC, which is our regulator, ordinarily people with deposits over 250,000 are not protected in that situation. Although they do eventually get some of their money back. But because this led to complete chaos in the financial markets with bank stocks falling and everything, 
the FDIC and other U.S. officials announced that in this case, as an unusual thing, they were going to give the deposit money back to those rich people as well. And those actually, it's not really rich people, it's rich, it's big companies, it's people who are running their payroll. So ordinary people were affected if you worked for a little startup that had all its money in Silicon Valley Bank, there was a fear that you wouldn't get paid. That's exactly kind of the thing that we were trying to uh, understand here in Ireland, because like you said, it's not an ordinary bank. It doesn't have ordinary customers. So it's kind of hard to get the day to day. But I think people can imagine, you know, sitting there waiting for your Friday paycheck to come in and it's not. And you're just like the small person who works with the tech company. And we have a lot of them in Dublin here. So I think that kind of portrays to people exactly what this could mean. Can you take us back to the days leading up to the collapse, what was happening exactly like external and internal to SVB? I think you can say that Silicon Valley Bank's problems really started well over a year before all of this, in that because there was an enormous amount of venture capital funding going to tech companies that then put that money in Silicon Valley Bank, the bank grew incredibly rapidly. It almost doubled in size in terms of deposits. And it frankly didn't know what to do with those deposits. It didn't have enough loans to make because it takes time to find people to lend money money to. So what it did is it put all those deposits and invested them in what sound like and generally are very safe securities, long-dated U.S. Treasury bonds. And the idea was to try and get some interest from those bonds, but it locked this money into long-dated bonds. Then when the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates last year, to try and deal with inflation, as I'm sure you all are also experiencing. As interest rates rise, treasury bonds that are locked into low rates lose their value, at least on paper. The weird thing about a bond, a treasury bond is if you hold it to maturity, it's a 10-year bond and you hold it to maturity, you get your money back. It's absolutely fine. But if, if you have to sell it before that, right, because interest rates have risen, it's lost value. So it would take a loss. So Silicon Valley has a bunch of money locked up in securities that are worth less on paper than than they were when Silicon Valley bought them. That's bad. Um, But it would be fine if they can just hang on to them. However, at the same time, the tech industry is running out of steam. And so its customers are starting to spend down their their deposits. They're taking those deposits and they're paying their payrolls. And there's no new money coming in because investment has come down. And so Silicon Valley Bank is then realizing it's going to have to sell some of these securities. And and there's a lot of anxiety. And by the end of last year and the very early part of this year, there's growing concern that they're going to have to take actual losses as opposed to paper losses because they'll have to sell these bonds. So February, the, the Financial Times where I work wrote a big piece about Silicon Valley is facing pressures. I mean, we had no idea what was going to happen next, I should point out. And but so there was this growing concern about them. And then what happens is in early March, Silicon Valley hears from one of the credit rating agencies that they're going to downgrade them, which means, you know, which is a warning to the market that there's a problem. And the company gets a warning and it realizes it needs to do something. So they decide what they're going to do is they're going to kind of they thought they'd cauterize the wound. What they would do is they would sell off a bunch of these uh, long-dated securities, take the loss now, and then use that money to reinvest in securities with higher rates, which would solve the problem. And they thought if they could do that, and at the same time announce that there's going to be an equity raise, that the, an equity is, and that gives them more stability. 
they would announce both at the same time that we've taken some losses, we've solved this problem, and we've got extra money from our investors, so you don't have to worry about us. So they make this announcement in, in March, I think it's March 8th. The problem is they announce they're going to do this, but they don't actually complete the investment in stocks. So they haven't actually got the extra investor money. And people react incredibly badly to this announcement. And the share price tanks. And what that means is the investors who were going to put their money in get scared and, and the equity raise fails. So share prices just keep, it, share price just drops and drops and drops until March 10th. The Federal Reserve ends up saying, sorry, the FDIC, which is the other regulator, ends up saying, you know, this is too dangerous and they take the bank over. Just one basic, basic banking question that people might have if they're coming to this very new. When you say that they had, they were taking in deposits and couldn't lend out the money quickly enough, why don't they just leave the deposit money sitting idle? Now, I know a lot of people, you know, any financial advisor will tell us not to leave money sitting idle, but how come that wasn't an option available? In theory, it was an option available. It would have meant, however, that they would not be making any money and um, they could become unprofitable and an unprofitable bank is bad. You also, there certainly are allegations that they did this because they wanted to hit particular revenue targets that would trigger bonuses. Um, and so whether they were greedy or just trying to avoid losing money, I think is something that an investigation is going to have to prove. But if you just let the money sit there, remember you're paying your depositors a tiny, at least some interest. And the kind of depositors they had, they had to pay a fair amount of interest. No, so the amount of interest they had to pay was going up. If it's just sitting in cash, they have nothing to generate that interest. And there was some talk in the in the days after this that tech leaders were spreading fear about the bank privately in messaging groups. Is there any truth to that? Was that did that play into it at all? It does because the other thing that happened is as the share price is going down, depositors who, again, remember, they're thinking our deposits are not insured. This is the my entire payroll. I've got to get it out. Started pulling their money. And there were tech leaders, particularly venture capitalists, who were messaging their companies saying like, how much of your money is tied up in this bank? And if it's a lot, get it out because you're going to need to be able to pay your payroll if something happens. And so, yes, there was definitely some, some spreading of fear. It's hard. It's a complicated thing with a deposit run because it was actually individually each depositor is making a sensible decision, which is that all of my money is in this bank. I have if it goes down, I don't know when I will get it back or how much of it I will get back. I need to move it. As a group, it killed the bank. Yeah, so it's it's that danger zone. You you mentioned there that the U.S. government obviously made a call to take it over. Exactly what did they do to to help the bank? So basically on March 10th, the person, they, they just said, we are shutting you down. And um, Silicon Valley Bank has a couple of different arms. And what they did was they take, took the really standard vanilla banking arm, the people who take deposits and make loans and invest the difference in you know, their leftover cash and securities. And they turned it into what's known as a bridge bank, which is the FDIC operates it. So it keeps working as a bank. Everybody continues to use it as a bank. And then eventually the FDIC will probably try to sell it to someone else because the FDIC obviously does not want to run banks forever. So they created a bridge bank and, and that bank is now operating. Because this didn't reassure everybody, they also declared that they would backstop the deposits for big depositors. And that's the uh, another thing the government did. And those are the main two actions. Is, and they, they will eventually sell off that bank 
either they'll give it to somebody large, merge it into a large company, or they will sell it to a small to some smaller outfit that will run it as an individual bank. And Brooke, HSBC came into play. Can you tell us what role they've been taking? Well, this involves Silicon Valley Bank's really quite small British arm. They had relatively recently started serving the, the UK tech industry, doing pretty much the same thing, where as, as a UK tech company got money from, a, from venture capitalists, often American venture capitalists, they were keeping it in Silicon Valley Bank's a British sub, I think it is, and using it to pay their payroll. So there was the same fear on a much smaller scale that you know a shutdown of the, the UK arm would again affect all these little tech companies that were trying desperately to bring innovation to Britain. And so what happened was the UK government got involved and basically handed the British the British bank to HSBC, who at the moment are operating it as a separate little bank while they think about what to do with it, and probably it will eventually integrate. But it, what it means is those customers don't get caught in whatever happens in the U.S. It's a separate little, little company or separate little lender that has now got HSBC on top of it. HSBC is giant. It's one of those those big banks that has to be more stable, has more cash, can deal with all this. So again, UK companies that were banking with the Silicon Valley UK arm are able to function. Selling your property? Ask your estate agent for a daft advantage ad today for maximum visibility, best results and best price for your property. You mentioned there that they took the kind of the the banking arm. One of the customers is actually the Irish government. We have the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund has funds uh, within one of the arms of SVP. Can you just explain, we have been told on this side of the water that those funds are not impacted by what's happening. Can you just explain the different arms and which arms were and weren't impacted by, by this? So Silicon Valley Bank had the bank, which is now clearly being run by the US government. It also has a um, a securities arm and a a, a, um, a private investment arm, and I believe that the Irish fund is part of the private investment arm. That is part of a larger group which has declared bankruptcy, not because it's out of business, but it's using the U.S. process to try and separate out the pieces so they can be sold off and kept alive. So those funds are segregated and not mixed up in the ba- in the bank's problems. But it, there is a process going on right now to try and sort it out and get it separated out. And as you talk about separation, there's never just one bank. This There was contagion. How did First Republic get sucked into this and what was the outcome? First Republic is another California-based lender that also caters to a lot of rich people, including technology folks. And so people immediately thought of it as, oh, what happens next? Its share price has been plunging. Um, it's, I think it's down 80% since the start of all of this. But it is so far still going. Um, and what happened last week was a bunch of the very biggest banks in America, the ones you have actually heard of, you know, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, uh, Wells Fargo, all agreed to put a bunch of cash into the bank, into First Republic as deposits, just like you or I would. And the idea is that they're demonstrating their confidence that this bank is not going to go down. And it also is cash that for now, First Republic can use to if other depositors take their money out. And again, First Republic has this a bit of the same problem. They didn't put all of their extra cash into long-dated securities. They actually did what a bank does and made a lot of mortgage loans. So, so they made lots of mortgage loans. And in the U.S., mortgage loans are generally 30-year loans. 
And so if you make a 30 year loan and, and, you know, like when you, when you buy a house, you do a 30 year loan, as long as I keep making my payments, there's no loss to the bank. They're fine. But if it needs cash, all of a sudden it would need to sell my loan. And again, as with the government securities, which again are completely safe if held to maturity, if they have to sell it sooner, my mortgage, because it's a 3% mortgage, and now a new mortgage, you have to get pay 6%, is worth less on paper. And so if First Republic has to sell its mortgage loans, it too will have a big loss, and that's scary. And that's why people are freaked out. But the idea is the big banks have tried to demonstrate confidence in this, uh, in this other bank in hopes that it will keep going. And we mentioned in our introduction as well that Signature uh, has been impacted too. What has happened there? Signature got taken over at almost the same time that Silicon Valley Bank did. Signature is a New York-based company that does a lot of commercial real estate lending. Um, And it, like the other two, has very big deposits. And so, again, when people got nervous, it was one of the places that, that everybody started pulling their deposits. Signature is less clear exactly what what they have done with all the deposit money and whether it is particularly well invested. Like, I mean, you can be very clear that a treasury bond is a treasury bond and it's if held to maturity, it's fine. Signature's lending book is more complicated. And in fact, what's interesting about that one is after they shut it down, they have found a buyer. So they have sold it to another bank, they being the government, they have sold it to another bank um, called Community Bank of New York, which is in the process of acquiring a couple of other banks and creating a new brand. And so it got sold. It's now actually part of a functional bank, um, but it was sold at a loss to the taxpayer. So clearly that that bank, it's not just a timing issue or long dated anything. There was something up with that bank. But anyway, it's closed. It's gone. It's been sold. Yeah, one, th- there was probably less waves made in Ireland by th- some of those things happening in America than there was by Credit Suisse uh, over the weekend. But the question that people have is, is it connected? Is this all connected um, or is it a separate issue? Was Credit Suisse's issue completely separate? Credit Suisse has been struggling for several years now. I mean, it, 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 basically, the, the rule about Credit Suisse was if something was going wrong in the markets, it was happening to them. So they have been I mean, deeply unprofitable for a long time. They're a giant, giant, giant bank, completely different scale. I and mean, this is, a, you know, this is a trillion dollar bank kind of, and the others are in the hundreds of billions. I mean, much, much bigger bank with, with tentacles all over the world. Um, famous, obviously, one of the two big Swiss banks. and But its problem is it, it has really been struggling to find a better business model because it keeps losing money, often because it would get involved in risky ventures that went bad. There Archegos, which was the family, a family office that caused ructions in the, the U.S. markets and caused losses to lots of banks. Credit Suisse took the biggest losses. Lots of banks took losses. They took big ones. It was tied up in something called Greensill, which is a a lending company that went bust in the UK. Again, Credit Suisse loses money on that. So what happens is Credit Suisse has been weak. And there there have been rumors. There were rumors last year that they were in trouble. And it has been limping along and trying to solve its problems. And when the the Silicon Valley Bank issue focused everybody's attention on, wow, lots of banks are going to struggle now that interest rates are rising and changing the value of the things they hold on their balance sheet. Everybody's like, okay, who's next? Who's most weak? I mean, it's a bit, it's a little scary. It's a little like, you know, like wolves circling a pack of bison or something and looking for the weak one. So I think 
it it is not they don't have the same problems and but they do have they they were hit by this general sense that banks are facing a tough time because of all this rapidly rising interest rates and they really you know the focus was back on credit suisse and a couple of things exacerbated that which is that credit suisse had been having a lot of outflows of of its customers in its wealth management arm within private banking so it wasn't on the scale of what happened to Silicon Valley, where everybody literally ran for the exits as fast as they could. It was more they were they were seeing more and more money just leave, which raises questions like how is this? How is Credit Suisse ever going to start making money again? It's it's unprofitable. Will it ever work? And I think what the Swiss authorities decided to do over the weekend was they couldn't see how Swiss how Credit Suisse was ever going to write itself. And what they did is they said to UBS, which is the other big Swiss bank, "You're stronger." You know, we're gonna just bang the two of you together, and and make sure we have one great big strong bank in Switzerland rather than one strong bank and one really pathetic bank. What was their fear about the pathetic bank? What could have happened if they had just allowed it to to fail? Well, you know, as nobody wants to a repeat of two thousand and eight, where the collapse of of Lehman Brothers, because it was on the other side of deals with many other banks. Its collapse caused chaos among all the other banks, many of whom actually might have been okay over a long time, but they just didn't know. You know, you know, if you're if you are say, I'm going to make this up. If you're Barclays and you've done a bunch of complicated deals involving derivatives and sales and stuff with Credit Suisse, and Credit Suisse disappears, how do you value those deals? They're gone, and that uh, that unsettles the entire banking industry. So Credit Suisse was definitely of the size where it would have unsettled lots and lots and lots of other banks. And at a time when obviously there's already a lot of unhappiness about banks and everybody's very anxious, I think the feeling was it was not a risk anyone could take. Yeah, because as I said, the question that everyone has here is, is this similar to 2008? And even I'm sure listeners will be the same as I am. They kind of shudder at the mention of downgrades like you talked about. Like We were all experts in downgrades in Ireland uh, back in 2008 to 2010. So is this different to 2008? Mostly, yes. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing to remember is with the exception, uh, exception of Credit Suisse, which really is has been struggling and visibly struggling for years, most of the very, very big banks, which have the ability to unsettle the entire market, are better capitalized, reasonably profitable or quite profitable, depending on which one you're talking about. And they have a better handle on exactly where their investments are. So if a little thing goes, a little bank goes down, they can immediately determine, okay, here are our losses and we have enough to cover this. If you can imagine, they have more cash on hand, like much, much more cash on hand. So if if for some reason they need cash to cover something, they have it. They've been required by the new global banking rules to have more capital, which is like shareholder money, that if there are losses, you can, again, use to counteract the losses. So they have both more liquidity and more capital, and they have better risk controls. Um, so what I would say is the biggest banks, I don't think at the moment, you need to worry about. I mean, they are they they are they are pretty stable, or, or certainly it would take a lot more to destabilize them than it did in two thousand and eight. The smaller banks, there are there are smaller banks in various places that have miscalculated and and are poorly positioned to deal with the fact that interest rates are rising very quickly. And I think that's the thing that everybody is watching is like how many of them are so poorly positioned that they're they're, they're really troubled and how many of them are just, you know, they're 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 going to wobble. They're going to have 
their share prices are down because they're not going to be as profitable because they've screwed this up a bit. But they're not, you know, there's a difference between not making as much money and being bust. And I think that's what everybody is watching for. My general feeling is that it's different to 2008, as I say, because the big banks are in better shape. And also because the governments are really well aware of the various contagion causes. And so the Swiss acted faster than they would have if they hadn't seen 2008. The Americans certainly acted faster than they ever would have if there hadn't been 2008. Um, and I think most other countries don't let their banks play with as much stupid stuff, I hope. I think definitely people will be listening in Ireland and hoping for that as well, given our experiences of 2008. So just last question, Brooke, is there a reason for the ordinary Joe and Jane to be concerned? You know, not the tech leaders or um, the people on payrolls that have money in SVB, but, you know, your ordinary banking customer in Ireland. It, should they be worried about anything? Well, I think a couple of things. I think would double check your deposit um, limits. You know, I, I can't remember what the protection level is in Ireland. There's actually that's one thing to remember. There's much better deposit insurance protection in Europe. There did not used to be, and and all over the EU, including Ireland, there's much better rules. But you know, say you are the person who might worry is. I don't think the banks are going anywhere. I think the Irish banks probably, they're still relatively recently recovered. And so they are much less likely to have done something stupid because you know, what happens is memories fade. And uh, you know, banks, Credit Suisse actually was a survivor in the, in the 2008 crisis and did rather well. You know, they, they were less alert to potential problems than others. So I think in general, the banks are probably not going anywhere, but so that you can, everybody can sleep at night. If, for example, you're saving up money for a house and or you're about to buy a house in two weeks, put it in two different banks so you're covered by deposit insurance. Neither bank is going to fail, but you will sleep better at night. I would love to have enough money to have it <laughs> close to a deposit cap, but uh, I think that's very good advice for people. Um, thank you so much, Brooke, for coming on and answering all of our questions in such a useful way. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Head to www.advantage.daft.ie today for more info on the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Brooke for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.